Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Jennifer Law. She's founder and president of the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network. She has 25 years experience as a pediatric critical care nurse, a hospital administrator, and a senior level nursing manager. Three times she has addressed the United Nations on surrogacy and human egg trafficking. In 2009, she was associate producer on her first documentary, Lines That Divide, The Great Stem Cell Debate. And she is now in post-production on her 11th documentary, The Lost Boys, Searching for Manhood, Exploring Male Detransitioners. Her films, her, her films cover the ethics of assisted reproductive technologies and the role of medicine in the transgender debates. All are available for, to view for free on at CBC Network YouTube channel. So first off, thank you for your work in the world. Second, thank you for being in the program. Thanks, Derek. It's good to be with you again. Yeah, I think I was looking up, we did an interview in, I think, 2015, and I wanted to tell you that because I don't have children and because I never really wanted children, I had honestly never thought anything about surrogacy, and I I wanted to let you know that you were the one who uh, politicized me about the harms of surrogacy and about the, you and Tristan, um and and just what it is i i had again i'd never i probably have thought of it maybe as much as you've thought of you know ice hockey or something i don't know um so thank you for that yeah thank you um i'm glad i peaked you yes exactly (laughs) um so i wrote you a few weeks ago about an article that you co-wrote um with uh Callie Fell. Callie Fell. Um, and the article was called, Is There a Doctor in the House? Subtitle, Queering the Medical Ethics of Pregnancy to Promulgatize a Desire for Normal Fetal Outcomes is an Abandonment of Evidence-Based Medicine and the Principle of Do No Harm. And that's a, that's a mouthful. Can you uh, talk about your article and then talk about the article and attitude that you were critiquing? Sure. Um, well, first, we were invited by Colin Wright to write this guest article for his um, substack. I think it's uh, Reality's Last Stand. And he was looking for somebody with medical expertise to uh, comment on this um, ar- article. It was actually published, a new paper in a journal, uh, the Journal of Qualitative Research in Health. You know, so it's, you know, a, a serious journal. The article of... Um, concern that we critiqued is a mouthful as well. It's called Medical Uncertainty and Reproduction of the Normal, normal in quotation marks, decision-making around testosterone therapy and transgender pregnancy. So that's a mouthful, but basically we were asked to, you know, obviously read this paper and um, comment on what our thoughts were. And this is a paper uh, the reason we titled it "Is There a Doctor in the House?" is it I thought it was this glaringly interesting that not one person with medical training expertise was an author of this. I believe there was five authors on this um, paper that was published, um, and they were you know sociologists, activists, um, kinds of people. So I'm already you know I already have my sort of radar up when I see people that don't have any kind of medical training. Um, medical ethical training, making such uh, shifts in their proposal. Basically, what they were proposing is that current practice of dealing with uh, pregnant women is is too gendered. Um, it's 
it's too focused on the outcome of the pregnancy, meaning the child or children that will be birthed out of that pregnancy. And they were making a strong argument that- uh, Wait, wait, wait. Okay, before we started recording, I had said we, that I, I had asked, I had begged you to um, just give their best argument and then to not critique it along the way. But now okay. I have to just say that that is horrible. Not what you're saying, but say what you just said again. That, that, that sorry, I, I can't even follow my own rules, but that's just say what you said again, because I really want readers to get this or listeners to get this. You, those About last their two, argument. Yes. That's just yes. horrifying to me. Yeah, it is. It is horrifying. Horrifying. And and I and Callie Feller are both nurses, so we were doubly horrified. So yes, their argument is that pregnancy care, as it's currently practiced, has been practiced for you know years, hundreds of years, is too gendered. It's too outcome focused on the health and well being of the child or children that will be born from that pregnancy, and that we need to sort of give a rethink, if you will. And that women who are on high-dose testosterone presenting as males while they're pregnant ought to be allowed to stay on their high-dose testosterone during the pregnancy and into the breastfeeding postpartum period of pregnancy. Um, and that's basically what they're arguing for. And the reason for that is that they're saying that these women are on high-dose testosterone to deal with their gender dysphoria, to deal with the fact that they are uncomfortable in their female bodies and and when in fact pregnancy is is only a female task <laughs> uh the sort of the irony that they would argue and there's no evidence put forward that this is safe um for a, a pregnant woman to be on high dose high dose testosterone during pregnancy they put forward no data because there is none that it is safe to the developing fetus in the womb and there is no data on the safety of uh, breastfeeding a, a newborn baby from milk that's you know, impacted or probably swimming with high-dose testosterone. So it's a feelings-based argument that it is more important that we disregard what's in the best interest to the pregnant mother, woman, and the developing fetus. And what needs to happen is a more centric approach on the care and desires and wishes of the pregnant woman. That's their argument in a nutshell. So can, can you, I, again, never having been in any way associated with a pregnancy, um, isn't really the point of, of health care for a pregnant mother and, and and her child isn't the whole point the physical safety and physical well-being of the mother and the physical safety and well-being and health of the child isn't that the entire point of prenatal natal postnatal care it absolutely is the whole entire point. And that's why, you know, when you look at research and publications in journals, it's often together. It's the study of maternal child health, because if the mother is not having health, then the child developing, the fetus developing in her womb is at risk. 
and you know so you don't separate you know you talk about women's health but often when a woman is now pregnant you talk about maternal health and maternal means mother maternal child health because it's a bundle and the doctor in especially in the case of pregnancy the doctor has two patients you know he and and honestly overwhelmingly women who are intending and planning to keep the pregnancy women overwhelmingly are, are bending over backwards doing whatever they can to ensure that the baby that's growing inside of them is healthy too which is why women take prenatal vitamins which is why women stop smoking or drinking or using drugs when they're found out they're pregnant which is why you know women seek good you know the physical care with a physician on, on a routine basis to track and monitor the pregnancy um, so it's it's a it's an absolute curveball that these authors have presented this, you know, what they, I think, think is an enlightened way. We've been looking at medicine the wrong way. It's been too focused on the, the child and the outcome of a child, and it needs to look more. And they talk about disparities um, and, and the fact that physicians today aren't trained in taking care of, you know, trans men's pregnancies, and so they're not experienced. And it's like, well, no, there's no training that physicians have to go to through because they're, they're taking care of women who are pregnant and they are trained in obstetrics and gynecology and, you know, fetal child medicine on how to take care of women who are pregnant. So it's, it's a pretty absurd um, um, claim that they're making or, or argument to change the way medicine has, has dealt with, you know, maternal child health. And we want healthy women, healthy pregnancies that hopefully result in healthy babies being born. So how, how do the authors justify, well, before we go there, don't they also talk about um, uh, a problem with, uh, quote, normal, talk about the, the problem with, with, um, normal children do you, do you remember do you know what i'm talking about yeah i mean they do um they argue that you know that pregnancy is is it's gendered um and that there's too much focus on helping women have healthy babies um they don't they don't say why that's a problem they just say it is a problem so you know again it gets back to the fact that for for hundreds of years women have been concerned about having healthy children and they're just saying it, you know, that that's wrong and that's not where our focus should be on producing healthy babies from healthy pregnancies. Um, so it's hard to, to sort of get in their head other than the fact that they're saying it's more important that this woman be allowed to stay on testosterone, even if that results in an unhealthy baby. So be it. Um, is, is their defense, you know, because it's more important that this woman, if she goes off testosterone, will feel dysphoric, she'll feel uncomfortable in her female body, and that will be, um, you know, very tragic for her. I, I guess it probably would be, but I would also say, well, isn't it kind of tragic if you're trying to present and think that you're a man, that, and now that you're a pregnant woman? <laughs> I guess, I, it's, Derek, it's honestly, it's hard to wrap my head around it. Um, I'm trying, you know, to be you know, hopefully explaining what their argument is, but they, you know, they don't give any data because there is no data. This is very experimental. 
you know, allowing a woman to be on high dose testosterone. It's experimental because we've just never really done it before. And that, that's what means why it becomes experimental. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not happening through the normal processes of like, how do you bring a new drug to market? How do you bring a new medical device to market? How, you know, how do you bring anything new in medicine to market? It's through the clinical trial process, which means, you know, there's several stages of clinical trials and and ultimate goal of all stages of clinical trial is, is it safe? Is it safe now to say, yes, you can take this particular drug and we know that it's safe and it will hopefully help your cancer. Um, and they're not making any of that, you know, statistical data kind of analysis. It's just, it's, um, it's all about feelings and emotions. You were talking about, you know, isn't it tragic that she, you know, feels, you know, bad in her body, but I, I, I've always been very sort of material reality based and we have to build from there. And isn't it tragic that they are, I mean, if, if the child is born with some, uh, difficulties or is born with some um abnormalities or some whatever word we want to use um because of the mother's behavior is that not um one of the two most tragic possible outcomes with the other being the death of the mother but leaving leaving that aside isn't isn't the um some burden that the child will have to carry for the rest of his or her life um isn't that the most tragic possible outcome here i think it's incredibly tragic i think it's incredibly uh selfish um because like i said you know for hundreds of years women have always the moment they found out that they're pregnant again with the wanted child that they're planning to carry to term they are always overwhelmingly invested in the best interest of that child and having a healthy pregnancy. I think it's also um, tragic that physicians, again, in my mind, an OBGYN doctor um, who's charged to take care of pregnant women has two patients. You know, he doesn't just say, okay, the mother wants this and he'll, you know, be damned to the child that's developing in, in the, in the womb. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm absolutely hoping that this kind of idea or or thesis that this group of um, authors is put, putting forward will be robustly rejected. But if you look at how trans medicine has been going um, in the United States, in particular, which is where you and I are, uh, it's not very encouraging um, because you know there's already studies out and, and noise being made that. Men ought to be able to have uterine transplants so that they can experience pregnancy and labor and delivery. Um, but, you know, this is experimental. Um, you know, the, the data that they used in their report was just like from a survey. It wasn't any kind of research longitudinal data that tracked people, you know, large sample sizes. It was just opinion surveys. Um, you know, one of the for people that actually they even quoted basically landed with well, maybe pregnancy isn't what this person needs to do. Um, if they're if their gender dysphoria, their mental illness, their mental health is so compromised that they can't go off testosterone, which we know is going to negatively impact, um, you know, especially a developing female fetus uh, as far as 
you know, abnormalities in her genitalia. I mean, why, why does genitalia become a, a clitoris versus a, a penis? It's, you know, it's androgynous hormones that will gonna, you know, negatively impact a little developing fetus's genitalia. So, um, yeah, I mean, I still just shake my head. It, again, it gets back to just the absurdities of things that get their way published into, you know, which should be serious kind of journals that go through the rigorous peer review process before they get published. And I mean, this, this brings up a larger question. Do you want to talk about the Hippocratic Oath? And um, yeah, do, do you want to talk about the Hippocratic Oath as it relates to this and other parts of this larger uh, medical field, by which I mean trans medicine, not OBGYN? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we do mention, you know, the, the do no harm, um, obligation, uh, oath of the physician. Um, you know, we do make the case that that oath to not do harm is to be extended to the mother and the child in this kind of a scenario. We actually even quote more recent, you know, the principles of biomedical um, ethics, which is, you know, I had to learn and read about when I was in graduate school, often referred to as the Georgetown mantra, because the two gentlemen that published the textbook, um, you know, were at Georgetown University, and it's the principles of biomedical ethics, which also guides how doctors are to work. And, you know, the first principle of the Georgetown mantra is to do good, and the second is to do no harm, and the third is respect for autonomy, and then the, the fourth principle is is one of justice. And you know, you could say autonomy is being denied the mother in this case because she says, I want to stay on testosterone. But again, when you have a mother-child dyad, you don't have a physician charged with making sure both of these people are safe and not harmed, and that and it's just. And it's a, it's just to protect the developing fetus, and the autonomy cannot be addressed because a child who's not yet born or not yet of age can't make autonomous decisions. And so the physician is is you know I would say and argue that he even has a higher duty to make sure that there's no harm done, and what is done is is good and not bad. And this is not. Um... This is not particularly new because I've I've actually known people who adopted children who were um, who had been removed from their mother because she refused to stop taking heavy drugs during pregnancy. Yes. And so my my point is that we recognize that taking certain drugs during pregnancy is um i mean we can we can so talk about something for a second you you chopped up on me there derek the dogs were screaming so i muted so i asked you to just talk about anything Oh, I'm sorry. I couldn't hear you. It sounded like you were screaming. Um, it was the dog screaming. Yeah. <laughs> Good for them. Uh, yeah, we, you were mentioning that it's not 
it's not uncommon or it's certainly sad if you if a mother has to be have her children taken away from her because she can't control her her drug use um it's the same with women who are you know during the pregnancy they still oftentimes will not um you know stop their drug use even though they're they've been court mandated to and and that's not the ideal i mean we're not arguing that that's okay we we do recognize that this child has you know society's obligation to uh, you know, be you know the voice for them and make sure that things are done in their best interest. Um, do you want to talk about? I mean, one of the things that horrifies me about this is the is is the centrality of it. One of the things that's happening here is the um, queer theory defines itself as, and this is not me making this up. This is the queer theorists themselves define it define itself as being against everything that is normal, mm -hmm. and um, they use that to argue for social changes. But the day I read your article, I also read an article about how instead of being horrified. At what endocrine disruptors are doing, for example, to amphibians, we should feel a, I believe the quote is perverse joy at the um at how these amphibians are no longer having normal reproduction. Mm. Which made me as upset as almost anything I've ever read. And I read that the same day as I read a day before as I read yours. And that's one of the things that's that seems to me that's also going on here is the one of the subtexts that I read in this was that um we should is is that one of the reasons it's perfectly acceptable for them to continue with the testosterone is that having a quote normal end quote child is not a desirable goal hmm. do, you, do you see what i'm trying to say about the larger queer theory question and we can certainly avoid it if you don't no no i i absolutely agree and i don't know um i mean at, at the heart of it is it is it incredibly self-centered and and me and my feelings are more important and I want I want to be pregnant, but I don't care what kind of child I give birth to because it's more important for me to have the pregnancy experience that I want and that I think I'm owed. It's you know it's owed to me, and that doctors are my service providers. So it's incredibly selfish. Um, uh, it's borderline narcissistic. Um, it might be pathological in in many cases. It might be a combination of all those. You can be pathological and you could be incredibly selfish. Um, and it's the same with our, our our view on the environment. I mean, I've been railing against what's happening in the waters and the amphibian you know, world because of the work I do in assisted reproduction and all these women that are taking these high-dose fertility drugs that, of course, make their way into our toilets and into our water streams and aren't being filtered out. And, you know, the hundreds of years that women have been taking oral contraceptions and you know all the people dump their expired pharmaceutical prescription drugs down the toilet you know 
Um, so it's, you know, it is a, it's a larger disregard for the planet and all that's in it. And, you know, I always tell people, whether it's our body or in our environment, it's a very delicate and fragile and beautiful system. And we are, are um, naive to think that we can do all this stuff over here on the right side and it's not going to affect anything on the left side. Um, but again, I think it's the, the larger problem, especially with these women that want to stay on high dose, dose testosterone, they're more concerned with their own their own wants and desires. And that's that's something new as it relates to pregnancy. Because yes, there's the one-off woman who can't get off of her drug addiction or stop smoking or stop drinking alcohol, even though she's told she needs to, but that's the rarity. That's not the exception. And we don't celebrate that. And we don't allow medicine to say, sure, keep abusing fentanyl while you're pregnant and snorting crack cocaine. We don't care because, you know, it's not important that the baby's healthy. <laughs> we say, stop it, or we're going to get child protective services involved or court involved. How um, maybe this is beyond the scope of this this interview, but how how has so much of the medical industry been captured to to well, let's back up a second and can you talk for a moment about open air experiments because that's really what's going on here? I'm not sure what's the phrase open air experiments mean like when you have when you do an experiment when they do a medical trial. They generally will do it in a lab under controlled conditions, and they are going to sacrifice um, these particular mice for the experiment. Or if you're going to see what are the effects of a certain drug on amphibians, the way which I would I would be horrified that they would do this to the particular amphibians. So that's an atrocity. But the way they do it is they do it in a lab. You don't dump them into a stream that dumping them into a stream would be an open air experiment and it's the same here that if you're giving if you're giving testosterone to pregnant women that is an experiment in the society at large as opposed to as you said earlier following the normal um, the normal pathway for it's, it's it's like the puberty blockers. That's a that's a yeah. large open air experiment that you're doing in society at large, or yeah. for, for for that matter, we can say the internet. You know, the internet is a huge. We're getting way off topic, but the internet is a huge <laughs> open air experiment on what it does to our psyches. Yeah, I, I, so that's I, I, what I mean yeah. by open air experiment. Yeah, I just I guess I was not familiar with that being called an open air experiment. But yeah, I mean, un unfortunately, like it or not, that happens all the time, right? We use all kinds of uh, medicines and treatments and, you know, off label, you know, that's more of the, the phrase that I've, you know, been steeped in, in my years working in hospital nursing. Um, because once some, you know, FDA approves Lupron, which is now used to block puberty, um, you know, the first, um, approval that FDA gave Lupron was for men in end stage prostate cancer. And then once a drug goes to market and has an FDA approval, we can use it off label for you know, because we think it might, you know, clear your acne or, you know, whatever, just fill in the plane. So, you know, there's, you know, all kinds of problems with that model. 
Um, or like, you know, in the case of, you know, this high dose testosterone in a pregnant woman, I, by your definition, that would be an open air experiment. And we're literally this, we're sort of pretending like this is a clinical trial and that we're just doing it. And, you know, then we'll report or measure the outcome. The child lived, the child died, the child was born, but the child was born with abnormal genitalia, uh, whatever. But, you know, that's hugely problematic in my mind. Um, because, you know, what's to stop anybody from just going out in their garage and start cooking up stuff and, and experimenting and dumping it in the, the drain in their street, you know? But I honestly don't think most people are aware of these kind of things that happen all the time. And because we, you know, live in this big, huge world, you know, what's happening in China and India and Africa and how other people are discarding their waste and dumping stuff into the waters and the land and burying stuff on the earth, you know, that's going to affect us all. Um, but, you know, I don't even, I can't even begin to know how to stop that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, in my own little world, I'm just trying to get, you know, your first question was how did medicine become like this? And I think part of it is, you know, it's to our own um, blame because we have overwhelmingly seen doctors as providers of services and we go to our doctor. You know, when I left nursing, I was instructed by the last hospital I worked with in the state of Illinois that I no longer had patients. I had clients and customers. Um, and, you know, there was just this shift of, you know, doctors, you know, and that was the argument in this this journal article that we're critiquing that, you know, doctors have this, you know, knowledge and secret power and that's bad. It's like, no, I want to, if I'm going to seek a physician because I've got a broken leg, I want to go to the best, you know, orthopedic surgeon that knows how to fix my broken leg. I don't want to go to somebody who's never even fixed a broken leg. Um, but, you know, when you see your physician as somebody who just, I'm a boy and I want my puberty blocked and I want, you know, bilateral breast implants and I want a vaginoplasty because it's going to help me feel better. And the doctor goes, okay, that's not medicine. And I think the shift was we went away from, you know, maybe rightly the paternalistic doctor knows best to why can't we have a conversation and be part of a discussion with our physician, recognizing the physician has an expertise that I can learn from. He knows more about how the body works and how my particular illness is or whatever it is. And I respect that um, versus no, no, I just don't agree with you. You know, my last job was working in an emergency room and people would literally come in saying, I had just done the Google research and I think I have this and I want a CAT scan. And they'd go, okay. And they'd send you off for a CAT scan. <laughs> Because, you know, it became, you know, consumer driven. Yeah, this may be beyond the scope of the, of the interview, but how do we, I hear and agree with everything you're saying. And, and we have all, um, I'm presuming you too, have had the examples of the negative paternalistic doctor who, who is quite possibly wrong. And, um, so we both recognize the importance of those intelligent conversations you're having, but how do we how do we how do we begin to move medicine back? And I also hear completely what you're saying about 
it basically being like going into a restaurant and saying, I would like, you know, menu item four. Um, how do we Hold get it back? Pickles. Hold the pickles and double onions. <laughs> yeah. How do we, how do we get it back to, how do we collectively get it back to, uh, to, to something more sane? Yeah. Well, you know, I, a couple things. I mean, when I look historic, um, historic moments in, in history when medicine has lost its way, and there's been many, um, you know, we could we could mention you know what happened in Nazi Germany and the experimentation that was done and the Nuremberg trials, which got us the Nuremberg Code of Ethics, which you know birthed the whole process of informed consent. Um, you know we can look at the lobotomy experiments. We can look at the Tuskegee studies in the United States. Um, we can look at the mass involuntarily involuntary sterilization programs that came from the United Kingdom to the U.S. because we wanted to decide who was fit and okay to, you know, procreate and who wasn't able to. And, you know, the uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes is, you know, three generations of imbeciles is enough. Um, Gavin Newsom out in California just a few years ago signed a reparations act to, to make restitution to people in the state of California that were forced and involuntarily sterilized. So, and part of those those times where medicine lost its way, there was a couple things that were happening and one was whistleblowers and one was um, lawsuits. So, and you know, like it or not, the United States loves to sue. We're a litigious kind of people. Um, And we, when you look at the whole area of trans medicine, we finally now have had one, if not two, pretty profound big whistleblower moments in the trans um, space. I'm thinking more specifically at Jamie Reed out of Washington University, who you know came out last year as a strong whistleblower against what she saw happening with gender affirmation care in, in quotes. Um, you know, and we now have quite a few. I think three in my state, California, three young youth, trans youth that are suing Kaiser Permanente. So. Those are kind of like collectively things that happen. Um, some of what has to happen, and I do see it happening, is within professional bodies. You know, the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, which is sort of the you know the professional body that is over pediatrics and pediatricians in America. You know, they just recently said that they were going to revisit, look at their guidelines again. It was kind of a namby-pamby statement, but still the fact that they have even said we're going to re-look at, revisit, you know, shows that these these groups are on, on uh, I don't want to say high alert, but, you know, they're on notice that parents aren't having this. So I think that's the kind of the individual stuff. You see what's happening with parent groups. Um, we have quite a few parent groups in the state of California. I think they're up in Sacramento today or tomorrow you know, another big rally in the Capitol saying this, you know, to stop doing this, Um, you know, and as individuals, we just need to demand better. Um, You know, you don't have to be trained in medicine. You don't have to feel like you're a, a, a biologist or you have, you know, good credentials in science, but, you know, develop a a relationship as much as you can in this broken medical field in the U S and, you know, ask your doctor, ask them questions. Is there a different way? Do we have to do that? Is there something that's 
um, that we can try as a first step, you know, uh, you know, it's the same with my work in infertility and fertility medicine. You know, a lot of things can be done to like correct naturally our fertile bodies for couples that are struggling that want to have children. You know, is there something, doctor, before we go to the big gun fertility drugs and taking eggs out of my body and sperm out and making these babies in the laboratory, you know, um, can we can we as a society start pumping the brakes? You know, can we look at our own health, you know, and deal with our massive obesity problem in the United States and the fact that kids are fatter than ever because they sit around on computers all day long? I mean, there's just and that's you know, that's at the individual level, but it's also at the collective level. Something a, a point you made early on, I want to go back to. Um, which is also in the the article, which is the sort of insanity of talking about um, birth, ab about prenatal care, about all of that as being too quote gendered. And and can you make the point? First off, can you talk about cervix havers? And then can you also make the point you did about in the article about not many people knowing what that is? Well, just the whole language that's we've had to change because we don't want to offend anybody or misgender them. Um, so that we say things like chest feeding instead of breastfeeding. We say cervix havers, birthing person, because we just want to erase um obliterate demolish you know biological sex and the distinctions between those two sexes and at a minimum you know what does that mean for um you know the the progress of medicine if we're going to accept western medicine or or you know utilize western medicine we have to realize that you know when doctors are prescribing different types of treatments or therapies a lot of times those are sexed, you know, I'm not going to, I don't have a prostate. I, I'm not going to be needing, you know, drugs for enlarged prostate. I'm not going to be offended if a doctor says, well, let's check your prostate. I'm going to say, I don't have a prostate. You don't need to check anything. Um, so I think it just sort of guts, you know, medicine at, at one, on one hand is a scientific um, profession. You know, you have to know how, the body works, how, how, you know, the systems of our body work, how our electrolytes and how our nervous system works. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, you know, hard science that's involved in understanding human anatomy and physiology and pathophysiologies. And so if we're going to neuter language so that we have to refer to people as birthing people or cervix havers, um, it's ridiculous. I'm, I, I'm not a big fan of the whole clinical trial practice and process, but I'm forever posting on my social media advertisements that they're calling for subjects in clinical trials. And you know what, Derek? It's sexed. We've got a new um, test we're studying for endometriosis. Now, they're not going to recruit men to study a new treatment for endometriosis. And it will say, we're looking for women between the ages of 25 and 40. You know, like men, no need to apply. You will not help us advance our knowledge of a treatment that might help women that have endometriosis. So it's absurd and it's detrimental to 
outcomes of evidence-based me medicine. Well, I completely agree with you. And then in addition, um, you, you mentioned in the article that uh, a lot of um, women don't know, even though nearly half of women don't know what a cervix is. And I think that, you know, you just made that as almost an offhand comment in there. But I think that that's desperately important in terms of, you know, like, I didn't know until I was in my 40s that prostates have something to do with orgasms. No. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, we, and, and we don't, and, and I'm, you know, so, so I want to be clear that I'm not implying that a woman who doesn't know what a cervix is is stupid. I mean, I, I didn't know, I didn't know what a prostate was until I was in my 40s. And so, so it's like, doesn't, if you want for people to be healthy, shouldn't you also make the language, they always talk about being inclusive, but shouldn't, shouldn't you not use obfuscatory language? If, do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, it's detrimental to our health. If you know you're in a high school, you know, sex ed class. I have no. I mean, I, I did high school a million years ago, so I have no idea what kind of gobbledygook they're teaching in high school sex ed classes. But if you're not using correct biological terms and you're trying to teach young people about their bodies, they're going to be more confused, and that's going to be more to the detriment of their own personal autonomy, their own ability to manage and, and recognize things in their body that aren't normal or maybe need looked into. Um, you know, I, because of the work I do in young women who, you know, sell their eggs and the, the egg poachers out there offering them obscene amounts of money to, you know, poach their eggs off of them. I'm constantly speaking to young women, telling them, please, please teach your daughters about how their body works. Um, you know, you know, women are sold all kinds of lies and they think, you know, I'm in the backyard of Silicon Valley, you know, Facebook and LinkedIn and all these companies are offering women these benefits to freeze and bank their eggs for later. And women aren't smart enough to figure out I might freeze and bank my eggs, but that doesn't ever guarantee me to have a baby down the road. And the older women get, it's, you know, it's not stupid. It's the older women get, the harder it is to get pregnant, it's even harder to maintain a pregnancy because we're old, you know, and we, we think we can live forever and we're all chasing this immortality and life extension. And, you know, I remind people all the time, a toddler is still a toddler too. You might be living to your 90 or your 100, but you're still a teenager at 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. We haven't done, you still enter menopause in your 40s. You know, those biological milestones still happen, even though you might live 10 or 20 or 30 years, you know, longer than people lived 100 years ago. Yes, we maybe can extend life, but there's certain things. You, your womb gets old. You can go to the gym all you want. You can lift weights all you want, but your uterus is a flappy, floppy, weak, um, muscle. <laughs> and, and, you know, putting an embryo in there and expecting it to grow to nine months and not have, you know, serious complications in that pregnancy, you are, you are deceiving yourself. So we have to educate people using the right language so that people can be better, you know, stewards and, and governors of their own bodies. And we have about seven or eight minutes left. And You've been doing this the whole time, but can we, can we, can you make sort of a specific appeal to having material reality be 
the basis for medical conversations and that anything else on top of that has to be built on the the physical material reality you've been making yeah. the whole time but can you do it again yeah i would just say that you know material reality is is Im imperative paramount to facts to truth and to evidence-based medicine um or else we're just going to open ourselves to become you know t just you know a, a major open air you call it open air testing ground you know just experimenting just throwing spaghetti on the wall to see what will fit but if you are not using clear specific reality-based language especially when talking about your human body male or female not your feelings not your preferences not your desires not your wishes and communicating that with your physician and expecting, demanding, giving your physician permission. I won't sue you if you misgender me. I don't care. I'm a man, doctor. Please refer to me as he and him. Um, you know, to cultivate that kind of a candid relationship. And I would just impress upon people listening to, you know, to when you're speaking with your physician or anybody else, say, it's really important to me that I am able to take care of my own personal health. Um, and my goals are to be healthy and and to live a life that will enhance my ability to live a healthy life. And anybody who's, you know, coming into my 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 sphere, whether it be a professional physician or a psychologist, you know, I want truth. I want facts. I want evidence based reality. A good friend of mine who's a doctor uh, often says that. Uh, correct diagnosis is a first step toward proper treatment. And how can you diagnose if you're not attending to? It's like I, I, I have Crohn's disease, and when I found out I had Crohn's disease in my in my twenties, it both broke my heart. But it was like, okay, now we know what physical reality is. It, it it grounded all of my symptoms in physical reality. And that was both sad in the moment because it's incurable, but also uh, very important because then we could move to the next step. And nobody was asking what I felt about this. They were just telling me what was true. Yeah, you know, I saw similar um, because all of my nursing work was heavily in pediatrics. So we would see a lot of children that were newly diagnosed with diabetes. Right. Um, so similar, you know, here's you know, you might get a three and four year old. You might get a 10 year old, you know, 16 year old that's newly diagnosed as insulin dependent and all the education that we would do on how they could monitor their blood sugars how they could you know administer their own insulin how they could advocate for their needs if they were on a school field trip and they felt you know like their blood sugar was dipping how they had to manage their nutrition and 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 modulate their nutrition based on their activity am i going to be playing in a soccer game this weekend or i'm just going to be laying around the house because you know all that fluctuates depending on you know calories burn and exercise and it wasn't we didn't we didn't lay down in a pile of heap and say, oh, well, let's just ignore this. And, you know, because this is going to be a, really a sucky life for you to live. 
and you can just go to all the birthday parties and have all the cake and ice cream you want and trick or treat and eat all the candy like all the other kids. It was like, no, this is this is your reality. This is the disease you have. It can be managed. It might be tricky. It might change. Your management of your disease will change as you grow because you're a two-year-old, you're a teenager, you're an adult, you know, your body's changing, your, you know, your, your insulin needs will, will depend on if you're sick or what. And, and these young people would, and their parents, obviously, because when you're dealing with children, you're often dealing with parents that have to, you know, help navigate this new way the family runs. And, you know, I was always just so proud of these young kids that would just rise to the occasion and not sit around and say, oh, poor me. Of course, it's sad. I'm not trying to d diminish that, you know, that a diabetes diagnosis is just like, oh, well, you know, get over it. Um, but, you know, it was, wasn't a death sentence. Yeah, well, thank you for that story. So, and thank you for all your analysis. And can you tell people how they can learn more about your work? Well, they can um, get on our email newsletter if they like that. And we're at cbc-network.org. Uh, you mentioned in the introduction our YouTube channel where all of our films are free to watch. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter at Jennifer Law and on Instagram at Jennifer Law too. So people who hang out in those kind of um, spaces can find us. Well, thank you so much for all of that. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Jennifer Law. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.